0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 15 of the Day Zero podcast. I'm Spectre. With me is Z and Auntie. Before we jump into topics, I'm just going to say we're going to be continuing the Android Binder uh, live stream on Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Uh, we were still having some trouble with it, so we are going to be doing a third stream on that. So I uh, just wanted to shout that out quickly. And uh, yeah, so let's talk about NordVPN because uh, we talked about them a little bit last week. And. Uh, They put out an update.
1: Their update actually came out shortly before we started streaming, I think. So, yeah, Yeah, we've got a little bit of an update on kind of what was going on with that situation. So, my hunch there about GoDaddy or a potential GoDaddy compromise leading to that uh, certificate definitely does seem inaccurate given what Nord has said. Uh there's kind of been a little bit of back and forth both so Nord is saying that this third party hosting provider was at fault, whereas the host is of course blaming Nord for it. Um really simply what they've stated here though is that uh effectively uh key facts being that there no credit or basically one server was compromised and it was because of a insecure remote management system
0: account yeah so i found something interesting about that so they said that the uh the breach was restricted when the data center deleted the that management account on march 20th in 2018 but uh Nord wasn't notified until April of 2019. So did the data center just not care to report about that account? Well,
1: yeah, so that's exactly what Nord ends up mentioning. Uh, They mention, kind of in the very next bit there, the data center deleted the user accounts that the user had exploited rather than notify us. So yeah, it does (laughs) sound like um, that's pretty much exactly what happened. The host just... You know, didn't think it was important to let them know that this compromise had happened. Now, the host indicates that, um, uh, I'm sorry, I don't have the link to pull up the host response. But they indicate that this uh security issue, I, all the detail we really have is from Nord here. That's an insecure remote management system account. So it sounds like, you know, maybe default credentials or something. Like some sort of default account was added. Um... And so the host thinks that Nord should have been the one to either remove that, um, although Nord indicates they weren't told about its existence. Um, I think it kind of looks bad. Assuming, you know, Nord's being truthful here, I have no reason to think they're not, and that the data center did delete the user account. That kind of seems like an admission of, you know, the data center knowing something was wrong there. Yeah. Uh, That said, again, you know, the data center is saying that this you know, was Nord's fault. I'm going to say if it was something like that, you know, Nord should have been aware that such an account existed. Like if this was uh, something, you know, like an ILO account or something, uh, just like some default creds, which is what this sounds like. They don't explicitly say that. It's just an insecure account. So like I said, that sounds like default creds are really weak creds. Uh, that sounds like something the data center should be informing, their clients about
0: yeah i mean it sounds like they really got screwed by the data center here um for sure
1: yeah i I mean their response was to trash the server like i mean that's
0: that's a fair response to it yeah i did want to say though like nordvpn did take a while to disclose too because i mean they were they were notified in april and they didn't say anything until security researchers started noticing that there were uh their private keys were compromised, so it's like they're not entirely in the clear either. Yes and opinion. no. Um, like I I do agree they probably should
1: have indicated at least that a compromise had happened. Um, yeah. that said, they do kind of try to explain that a bit. Uh, they yeah, do mention so... that they had or they wanted to look through. Uh, basically the rest of their you know. Over five thousand, they like to emphasize how many servers they have in just the one. Like I think that's kind of their, um, actually, interestingly, we see there's configurations for over five thousand servers here, and then just down here, three thousand servers.
2: Yeah, that was a little confusing. (laughs) Uh,
1: I did notice that when I was reading it off before. I didn't either. Good catch. But um, you know, it seems like you know they're definitely trying to downplay with that. They also have this lovely image. Yeah, this one—a beautiful up, incident scope <laughs> image showing their secure three thousand servers and their one affected server. Like they're definitely trying to get that point across that this was, you know, just one, um, one incident.
0: Yeah, I did just want to address that uh that like statement that we highlighted a little bit lower with the, uh, as a result, we decided we should not notify the public until we could be sure that the attack couldn't be replicated. Uh, I think that's kind of a poor excuse. I think they could have at least, like you said, uh, say that a compromise had happened. They didn't have to go into detail until they did that investigation, but they should have at least said that something did happen.
1: Yeah, uh, though, in fairness, it does seem like the audit was ongoing and is ongoing at this point. And I will also mention that, nor did it release kind of a security plan for moving forward from this also I did like that, yeah, which I'll pull up here, uh which I mean they mentioned you know a partnership with a pen testing firm, obviously, they don't have a firm yet for this, but uh planning to uh you know partner with some firm to do you know source analysis and actual penetration testing, so this wouldn't be the infrastructure um audit that they seem to already be doing um introducing a bug bounty program yep um and then yeah this infrastructure security audit uh having a full-scale third-party independent security audit and now i don't know what they'll actually do with this but when they did have a audit previously um they did go ahead and also release the audit report to um all of the customers um, so, like, they didn't release it publicly, but as a NordVPN customer, I can see it in my panel and kind of view the audit report. Um, and it was just a audit on their uh, logging as a kind of evidence that they're not having any logs. They had a third party company, um, basically perform an audit on exactly that. I would hope they do the same with these uh, infrastructure security audits. Obviously, there's a bit more sensitive information on that, uh, but it yeah. would be a nice practice to see them do. And uh, probably one of the important things I think they're changing here is having uh, vendor security assessments. Uh, so all of the vendors actually need to have their security assess, which you know, is the type of audit I've done in the past. Of uh, you know, you have a vendor that's offering either a managed service or they at least set up a service to just making sure like that default or their Initial setup is secure for their clients, and there aren't any significant gotchas there, which I think is definitely a good move. Like, it's a little bit annoying when you're on kind of the vendor side to then need to be kind of audited, but from kind of north side, like I, I totally get that push, and I think it's a good move.
2: Yeah. Fair then, I was just curious about the uh, there's there's only two parts I was really intrigued by. First part is in their update they they make mention of like the diskless servers uh they're they're upgrading i guess all their servers to to ram servers i, I wonder if it's still even if you're not storing configurations and stuff like that they mentioned like if one of the se- uh, servers were seized i mean i i'm pretty sure even with that you can still kind of um compromise some information maybe not as much obviously but yeah but it does
1: limit kind of as you're noting what can be done i mean so one of the concerns though is you know stealing data at rest ram servers are going to prevent that and this is something actually i think it's express vpn they already do this interesting so i think it's just we're going to see more VPN starting to do this and we probably are i'm not i don't really follow the vpn scene on all of that but i'm going to guess more than just expressvpn is doing it now i just recall that express was i believe the first to kind of move to this um i imagine going forward we're going to
2: see that a lot more yeah i was just surprised that they weren't already doing that but i'm sure it's actually oh, okay very yeah very expensive to do that but the other thought that i wanted to, in the original article or the blog post that they made they did mention and no one said anything about it really too much was they did say that they weren't the only ones affected I believe they said there were two other VPN providers
1: yes that... um, there were a couple others and I think I'm not sure if we mentioned them during the last I don't like, think we did I don't or. remember not yeah I don't mentioned. have them written down here but yeah there were two other providers um, I don't want to name any names right now just because you know asserting that somebody was compromised probably isn't the best move don't that want <laughs> you could yeah. say that, yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, overall, I mean, I'm a bit mixed on the report, because they did kind of own up to it, and they said, like, this is unacceptable, we're going to be putting through that new security plan and stuff like that. At the same time, they did do, like, a, a whole lot of damage control in their statement. So, you know, it's kind of... I mean, perspective's
1: everything, too. What I... do you mean by that? Well, so, I mean what are you going to base your choice of v- vpn on it's going sure. to be on the reputation yeah, okay. so
2: I, yeah. I i think the the solid thing they always have to relate really more or less is that like even if you're compromised your data is still safe because that's the one like concern right is that this this is just one example you know there people could be compromised all over the place left and right but the you know the responsibility is more to show that like you know look we don't store enough data to make you you know, someone that's of whatever, it's law enforcement or the ISP or whomever that wants to target the users, it should always be that kind of correlation. Like, you know, even if this is compromised, you're still safe. So I think that's why the RAM servers were, were an interesting push and probably more value than this one server one time got compromised. Okay. All right. So let's talk about
0: another major service getting hit, AWS got hit by a major ddos attack uh so you you brought this up c so i remember you saying you were trying to look at what the uh intensity was and you couldn't find anything
1: yeah i was definitely curious on you know at what rate they were being hit because i mean obviously aws is a major provider they offer dns as like a one of their key services you know ralph 53 they offer Denial of service protection as one of their services with, uh, I think it's AWS shield. So like, you know, the fact that they're being hit and having issues kind of seems to tell me that it's probably a pretty significant, uh, denial of service attack.
0: Yeah. I mean, they, they mentioned that in the article too, saying that due to the size of AWS and stuff, that it it would have to be a large attack.
1: Yeah, but I wasn't able to find
0: um, anything that actually
1: indicated what, what the size was of this, just that it was likely massive, um, and uh, AWS hasn't put out an incident
0: report yet for it. Okay. I mean, one thing I did want to say is, like, I'll be honest, I didn't really hear anything about this when it happened, which I thought was weird. Okay, Luke.
1: I definitely knew about it, but I was on, I was using a couple of services that were impacted by it.
0: Okay. auntie, did you hear about this? Um,
1: and DigitalOcean was impacted by it. Actually, that's kind of one place you can get not really a ton of information, but DigitalOcean does have um, kind of a report. Basically, they just go and blame AWS for it. It doesn't say a ton. <laughs> yeah. uh, but you do kind of get
0: some. Some of the timeline out of their report here. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I just thought it was weird, like I'm I'm pretty sure I use some services that are powered by AWS because AWS is everywhere. I just uh yeah, it's weird. I didn't really hear about it, so
1: Yeah, it was definitely like intermittent issues. Like they were catching a fair bit of the attack apparently, but not able to catch everything or not able to null out everything from it. Um, actually, it seemed like most of the denial of service was possibly self-DOS in that uh, they were catching too much. Certain client requests were being uh, routed as like attack requests. Yeah, however, the services mitigation did end up flagging some legitimate customer queries as malicious ones. Um, so it's possible that that's also where people were kind of being hit by DOS because their mitigation was blocking it.
0: Yeah. Alright, so yeah, we don't have too much on that, just that it, it did happen. Uh, they say that there's going to be a full investigation, and there's not really going to be much details until that, so uh, just wanted to bring that up. We had another data breach. Uh, Creative Cloud, Adobe Creative Cloud, 7 million accounts exposed
1: yeah and interesting this is actually the same guy that reported the uh CenturyLink database from yep. last year i was gonna
0: say that yeah
1: i think i only really noticed that because auntie went and mentioned you know bob while we were doing the CenturyLink one and then of course i read his name in in this report
0: oh wow you remember based off the name i just i saw like i think near the end of the uh report they state that uh uh, these guys uncovered a few other campaigns, and or uh, a, a few other breaches in the past, one of them being the CenturyLink one. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. You mean but, you read these articles ahead of time?
2: I'm just I scanning do. them on stream. <laughs> That's what I do, man.
0: Um... It looks like it was another exposed database issue. Did, I, they didn't mention it, but, like, I'm wondering if this was another MongoDB thing, you
1: know? Um, Actually, they do mention. It was Elasticsearch this time. Yeah.
0: Oh, okay, okay.
1: Yeah, I th- it's here. The yeah, Elasticsearch okay, database uh, could be accessed without password or other authentication, which is something I kind of want to touch on. Although, before we get that, let's just mention it was a, you know, Adobe Creative... Uh, Cloud accounts, uh, around 7 million. Uh, It wasn't terribly sensitive. Uh, Email addresses, account creation date, Adobe products they use, subscription status, um, if the user's an Adobe employee, member IDs, country, time since last login, and payment status. So no payment information, no actual name, unless it's used in your email. Things that could definitely be used for phishing, especially that is Adobe employee aspect. Uh, but also stuff of kind of
0: limited, um, limited, practic- like, immediate use. Yeah, there's no passwords or anything that were dumped. Uh, yeah. It was all uh, PII, which is still bad, but it's not as bad.
1: Yeah, although what I did want to touch on, though, is just the fact that this is a, just another case of a database being accidentally, I assume, exposed kind of to the internet. Uh, it wasn't MongoDB. It was Elasticsearch. But Elasticsearch, um, and just as a preface, I've only really used Elasticsearch on one project. So, Uh, you know, may- maybe I'm mistaken about this. But my understanding is that the security features are basically only available as part of the Elastic.co's kind of hosted solution, which is they have several, like, paid tiers for their hosting of Elasticsearch. And then they do have a free basic one that also, as of, like, May includes security features but the open source one so that's what would have been here because i believe it's also mentioned that this was hosted um on amazon so they were running the open source um Elasticsearch. doesn't include security features doesn't include you know ip whitelisting or a user account and honestly i don't think um and actually i will also mention that even at the free tier uh with their hosted one um it's still disabled by default uh, So, because of that, it's obviously really easy. You accidentally put this on the internet and, you know, everybody gets access to it. I don't get why companies think security should be a bonus or value-added feature. Like, it is a value-add, but I I, mean, I just have to say, like, you know, screw that. Like, at least relational database, you know, your MySQL... um or MariaDB DB nows. I think, more people are moving towards, uh, even Oracle and stuff. Like, they have authentication there. I guess Oracle, though, isn't free. But, um, you know, it, it just seems like a really bad move. And we're seeing it biting a number of companies in the ass, especially with Mongo, but obviously with Elasticsearch, too.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, the problem with it is, like, Companies that get hit with like security vulnerabilities, for example, like even just like uh, an SQLI, let's say, you know, um, you can say that, you know, maybe it was a third party vendor or something. It, it might have been a, a harder security issue unless you were specifically auditing for that. These databases being exposed to the Internet like this is just blatant negligence. Like, I have no idea how nobody would notice that. Like, I well, I, I feel like you wouldn't even need a, like a security. Uh, read or like audit to catch something like that because it's so obvious
1: i mean the thing is or the question kind of comes down it could just be as simple as you know listening on 0.0.0.0 instead of you know 127.0.0.1 i mean it is easy enough for a developer to just you know do that by default and i mean yeah okay i can understand i kind of want to put the blame on elasticsearch here more so like yes, it is still something that obviously they need to be aware. You don't have any security in front of this. Don't put it on the internet. Plain and simple. Like it is still Adobe's fault, but Elasticsearch isn't. Do- is in a good position to be able to do something about it, and they've chosen, uh, to only do that if you pay them and have them host your Elasticsearch instance.
0: Okay. Um, I- I'm curious. And okay, what do you think about the MongoDB? Do you think it's the same case there? Same thing. Yeah same thing
1: okay yeah no i i think that whole move on a whole within a lot of these um no sequel databases to remove authentication is just a very bad move and we're starting to see it now biting companies because you know people just aren't really thinking about those implications and it is something that you kind of expect or at least i can imagine a developer kind of expecting that their database is just secure even though they're not really aware of how or why which is a whole nother issue but they they kind of treat it like a black box
0: is what you're saying yeah yeah
1: and i don't know i just feel like the vendors really should have a bit more responsibility on that because they are creating these products with security features completely left out that really should be there i mean yes they are indicating that this should only be run locally you know running it on local hosts but you you're also setting up to be running cluster so it's going to be on the network at the very least it'll be on the network uh whether or not it's out to the internet's another question but you know there's the anticipation it's going to be out on the network and they don't give you any warnings uh, i mean maybe it is in documentation i believe MongoDB db does give you a warning in documentation and it's just i think vendors are the ones that can really fix this issue.
2: Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's I, I a good point to bring up. I just want to point out, I mean, it, it's like, you know, something to always keep in mind for a lot of people is, like, it, it's very easy coming from our mindset of, like, well, this is stupid. Obviously, you should have made sure it was secure and this and that. Um, but, I mean, a lot of the friends of mine that are developers, you know, they talk about all the time how something starts as, like, a, just a test project. So they toss it up somewhere and not really worry about it because then somehow, some way, it, it became a production-ready type of thing. And at that point, you know, no one realized that, oh, wait, we shouldn't have had this exposed. And I think that comes down to not just the, obviously, the engineers and people who put this stuff up, but, you know, realistically, for a company like Adobe, who I don't know how much they make, but I assume enough to afford some basic network monitoring, and assuming this was, again, in their IP space or in their domain, you know, this is why things like pay for a script or whatever Shodan that has continuous network monitoring to see when those types of things come up out of nowhere. I mean, that's... It seems like to me that's a pretty obvious fix that doesn't have. You don't even have to go to the vendor level. Someone from their security team should have had a solution monitoring that stuff.
0: I mean, Adobe's always had kind of a shoddy security stance. Uh, You just have to look at Flash to see that. Uh, Like, I don't know. I don't know. To to be fair to Adobe, stuff like this has to happen before. You know, if companies start taking security a little bit more seriously. And yeah, trying I, I do want to, wanna, you know, protect against these types of issues, but.
1: I do want to touch on there, to be fair to Adobe. um That was kind of owned by Macromedia before Adobe. Like, you know, it was there was Shockwave and there's Flash and both were from Macromedia before Adobe bought them. So there could have been a significant chunk of legacy that ends, That ended up leading to the issues. I don't want to lay the blame completely on Adobe, although Adobe obviously owned it for quite a while. Um, yeah, I mean, it's and, a know, the opportunity. Yeah, but I mean, I, I'm just saying, like, there is there are other aspects at play, I
2: think. Okay. There was one more thing laying out there, is that they did respond the same day and take it down the same day. Not that, you know, we need to kiss their ass about it, but there are a lot of these reports that you'll read where it took the vendor three weeks to respond to the research or something like that, where they actually responded pretty much apparently right away. That's
1: a yeah, fair um, point.
2: anti glass kind
0: of guy.
1: <laughs> yeah, in terms of kind of being prepared and looking at it, like, I, I agree, like, it is kind of a bad sign for a company to have that. But at the same time, in a large company, you've got a ton of IP addresses, or you've got a ton of resources. Yeah. It is a difficult problem to manage everything, um, it, even to scan everything. Like, especially when it's not just, like, some, you know, sub-1000 port, you know, if it's just sitting on some random port. I don't know what port Elasticsearch defaults to.
2: Yeah, I and I'm sure there's not as many details that we have. Obviously, I'm sure there's more to the story. But, yeah, I mean, I'm not trying to save Adobe. and I don't think anyone else is here. It's just there is a lot of complications with a large network. And there's obviously a lot of complications when you're trying to handle crap like this. We're like, okay, now what? It's been out there. So, I think I think it's a an interesting kind of leak though, um compared to some of the other recent ones.
0: Yeah. So I mean yeah, we were talking although, about this one, uh sorry, did you want to see something well, there?
2: I, I was just
1: gonna actually move on to the next one, which happens to be another insecure um Elasticsearch database.
0: Oh, is it Elasticsearch here too? Yes, this one was Elasticsearch <laughs> also. Alright, I didn't catch that either, man.
1: Yeah, so this one was the uh, US, well, it's more than just US government stuff, but one of the key things is that, oh, actually, I have the note here saying this one was hosted on AWS, so it's possible that the Adobe one wasn't AWS. I just misremembered which one, but 179 gigs of data, uh, suspected, not confirmed to be owned by AutoClark, kind of a reservation management system uh, that's owned by the Best Western hotel chain. Um, and this exposed, like, name, date of birth, home address, phone number, uh, cost and date of travel, and um, and what's crucial with this, well, obviously every a lot of people are impacted by it, but this included U.S. government, military, and Department of Homeland Security officials, including, their example is generals traveling to Tel Aviv and Moscow, like, all of their travel information. Yeah,
0: and the other thing that's notable, too, is, uh, you know, obviously these records include travel information of future reservations, so those reservations are probably all getting (laughs) cancelled.
1: Yeah, like, this... I'm just so surprised to see it happen, like, it makes like, again, Elasticsearch, security is, is a bonus feature, so... You know, like, I can understand how it happened, but just to see, like, you know, a lot of military and government information just getting leaked, just like that. And then the response timeline. Uh, they actually end up escalating it to the U.S. Embassy. Uh, rather okay. Than...
0: Oh, yeah the, yeah, the one in Tel Aviv, okay. Um, I, I did just want to ask, like, since there were so many that were exposed... Does the government have a contract with Best Western or something like that for these kinds of uh
1: that trips? or it might be with I think that's part of why they suspected Auto Clerk.
0: Okay. Um
1: but yeah, I don't know if they have a contract with that. Obviously the government's large enough that they probably do have a contract uh with at least some company or some provider that ends up getting them uh kind of with other other hotel chains like i as far as i'm aware you know the government isn't best
0: western only yeah i mean i was just like the reason i was wondering about that was like um you know obviously after something like this i was wondering if that kind of contract would get terminated you know kind of immediately or anything like that i I think it definitely depends on what the root cause was okay fair enough Um, yeah that was just like a curiosity i had it's not really mentioned in the article or anything
1: no, and it's hard to say what would happen, um, but I think it would be, you know, at least a more responsible move would be to actually take a look at what happened and why it happened. Like, you know, if AutoClerk was some third-party vendor that was used by their, uh, whoever they have a contract with or something, it's a little bit mo- like, maybe they wouldn't cancel it, whereas if it's used, like, if their contract was with the vendor that... Expose this information, like if it was with Best Western or something, Uh, then it kind of makes sense uh, that they would actually terminate it. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I can only kind of speculate.
0: Okay. But, yeah, like the main, you know, focus around the story is that it's a pretty serious, uh you know, OSINT breach for government. Uh, yeah, like you, know, that, you, that can, you that can see stands this being out. used by terrorists and stuff like that. Like it's it's kinda crazy how much impact it has.
1: Yeah, did they mention how long they suspected it was up for?
0: I didn't see anything about that. Uh I'll I'll do a quick search, but I, I didn't see anything saying yeah. how long it was exposed. There wasn't a lot of uh technical details of what happened, honestly.
1: Yeah, no, definitely lacking on that. I mean obviously there's a the timeline and stuff, but uh definitely kind of written more for public consumption than a more technical audience
0: yeah, so you know, just wanted to mention that uh that obviously happened uh but talking of u s government uh there was a podcast i mean you know we're we're gonna start going a bit to the light side we're gonna start you know going to some good stuff. So, uh, did you guys, wa- did you watch the, uh, Joe Rogan Experience Edward Snowden podcast in full Z, or did you just, uh, see, I, like, I did watch,
1: no, I watched the entire thing.
0: Okay, what about you, Auntie? Did you check it out?
2: I, I watched, like, bits and pieces, probably, like, 30 minutes total.
0: Okay. Well, uh, do yourself a favor and listen to the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I quite, so I've,
1: I've only watched one other episode of the Joe Rogan Experience. I mean, actually, funnily enough, Snowden kind of mentions the the idea you get of the podcast from the avatar uh, is <laughs> yeah, very different funny. from what the actual kind of experience with the podcast is, at least with a uh, couple episodes that I have actually seen. He's uh, had a
0: lot of cool guests on there.
1: Yeah. yeah, I mean, it, I've I've obviously heard about the podcast a bunch. Like, it's a very popular podcast. Um, I'd say
0: the most popular, probably. Yeah. It just, yeah, you know, it popular.
1: wasn't really what I expected. It, I was pleasantly surprised by, you know, this whole thing. Actually, I went and bought um, a permanent record on the basis of uh, this this podcast.
0: And that's his book, right?
1: Yeah that's that's the book that he's uh, publicizing now. He's done a few other interviews mentioning it too. Okay. So perhaps that kind of biased me a little bit, but basically, right in response, kind of hearing Snowden, just kind of candidly talk about some of his experiences, uh, before he ended up. Obviously, if you're not aware, like Snowden leaked a lot of the information. Um, uh, can't I can't remember the year for some reason now. Uh,
0: uh, it was a while? was it?
1: Two 2000- thousand. I want to say fourteen.
0: That sounds right. 2013, 2014, somewhere around there.
1: Yeah, basically about a lot of the government spying stuff. He's the guy that went over to Russia and all that. But, you know, hearing his story, just kind of candidly talking about his time when he was working, you know, with CIA, when he was working uh, NSA, and, like, how he got into some of those positions. Just that very candid discussion over his experiences.
2: Yeah, so there was
0: nothing, like, uh, you know, earth-shattering in the interview like nothing he hasn't really already disclosed but it was it was like more of a personal take and i, I kind of liked it
1: yeah i quite like that Though so there was kind of the one point or one thing he did say a few you know pretty poignant things but um at least one of the things that i know stuck out to me and when we talked about this before the show you had mentioned or you had called out yourself where he talks about their kind of being if there was a button on your phone that said do what i want but don't spy on me you would press that button um and I've actually kinda of got the section here queued up to play. Um I am going to play this at uh one point two five speed, just get through it's a few minutes long. But I was hoping we might be able to discuss that a little bit.
0: Primary yes Yeah, fair enough. Uh so do you click? want a three two one it? Uh just
1: so we can um, sync it up. I actually already started it, but uh okay, uh yeah, fine. let me um so I'm actually starting at two thirty five twelve. Okay. Actually, I will just refresh the page and go at 10 in three, two,
3: one. Your primary threats are these bulk collection programs. Your primary threat is the fact that your phone is constantly squawking to these cell phone towers. It's doing all of these things because we leave our phones in a state that is constantly on. You're constantly connected, right? Uh, airplane mode uh, doesn't even turn off Wi-Fi really anymore. It just turns off the cellular modem. Um, but the whole idea is we need to identify the problem. And the central problem with smartphone use today is you have no idea what the hell it's doing at any given time. Like, the phone has the screen off. You don't know what it's connected to. You don't know how frequently it's doing it. Uh, Apple uh, and iOS, unfortunately, makes it impossible to see uh, what kind of network connections are constantly made on the device and to intermediate them, going, I don't want Facebook to be able to talk right now. You know, I don't want Google to be able to talk right now. I just want my uh, secure messenger app to be able to talk. Uh, I just want my weather app to be able to talk. But I just checked my weather. And now I'm done with it, so I don't want that to be able to talk anymore. And we need to be able to make these intelligent decisions uh, on not just an app by app basis, but a connection by connection basis. Right? You want, let's say, you use Facebook because you know, uh, for whatever judgment we have, a lot of people might do it. You want it to be able to connect to Facebook's content servers. Uh, you want it to be able to message a friend. You want it to be able to download a photograph or whatever, but you don't want it to be able to talk to an ad server. You don't want it to talk to an analytics server that's monitoring your behavior, right? You don't want to talk to all these third-party things because Facebook crams their garbage uh, into almost every app that you download and you don't even know what's happening because you can't see it, right? And this is the problem with the data collection you use today is there is an industry that is built on keeping this invisible. Uh, And what we need to do is we need to make the activities of uh, our devices, whether it's a phone, whether it's a computer whatever, uh, more visible and understandable to the average person and then give them control over it. So like if you could see your phone right now, and at the very center of it is a little green icon that's your you know, handset or it's a picture of your face, whatever. And then you see all these little spokes coming off of it. That's every app that your phone is talking to right now or every app that is active on your phone right now and all of the hosts that it's connecting to. And you can see right now, once every three seconds, your phone is checking into Facebook and you could just poke that app and then boom, it's not talking to Facebook anymore. Facebook's not allowed. Facebook's speaking privileges have been revoked, right? You would do that. We would all do that. If there was a button on your phone that said, do what I want but not spy on me, you would press that button, right? That button does not exist right now. And both Google and Apple, unfortunately Apple's a lot better at this than Google, Uh, but uh, neither of them allow that button to exist. In fact, they actively interfere with it because they say it's a security risk. And from a particular perspective, they, they actually aren't wrong there. Uh, But it's not enough to go, you know, we have to lock that capability off from people because we don't trust they would make the right decisions. We think it's too complicated for people to do this. We think there's too many connections being made. Well, that is actually a confession of the problem right there.
1: So, yeah, that's kind of where I'll stop playing it through. Just, uh, you know, roughly four minutes of the video. Um, I, I don't know. I, I thought he makes a good point about one, you know, too many connections. I think for most people, it's, a true fact that if they saw or could visualize how often things like Google and Facebook are calling home and kind of sharing their information, they'd be a lot more freaked out uh, regarding their privacy than it just being so invisible and hidden from everyone.
0: Would they, though? Because, like, no, I think if people like saw Facebook.
1: it visually, um, okay. you know, when it's if it's calling out, like he gives the example there every three seconds calling out. I think visually, like. Yeah, people would be. I mean, maybe not, but I, I have a feeling a lot of people would if they had some sort of visual representation of everything that's going on. Um, Obviously, not everybody would, but I think a good number of people, if they actually saw that, um, would take issue with it and would be more than happy to stop and say, you know, no, you know, you can't speak anymore. Zee is,
0: like, taking away Facebook speaking privileges. By tapping on it in the app. But see, like, the reason I think that a lot of people actually wouldn't be as interested in that as we might think is, like, Facebook has had this thing for a while now where, you know, it obviously continuously tracks your location, and you can check in to places. And people, you know, you literally, it's like a post to your timeline saying, "Uh, I have checked in to the McDonald's on this street. Like, people are very willing to give up that information already. And sure, a lot of but... that information that it's pinging out is probably stuff like location data, which people don't really seem to care about. Sure. You know? People
1: are happy to go and share that information when they want to. I'm at this place. I'm at that place. I mean, that was the whole idea of what was a foursquare, I think it was called. You know, you would check into locations like that. Um, like people uh, are happy to go and share that. It's a little bit different, though, when it's like I remember I just showed my mom the fact that I could or we could look up on Google to see what hotel she stayed at last year. Because Google had a record of her location, so we just looked at which one and
2: But what but what does that mean to her? Like if you say to someone, Hey, I know last year you're staying at this hotel, on a on an average person, they'd be like, That's a little spooky, right? But would that really register with them? If they're not someone who's like a what you call a person of interest, right? Would they really care? In the in the at the end of it all, right?
0: yeah that's my thing too is like you know if you tell people okay i can see what hotel you stayed at last year or i can even see your location right now for analytic purposes most people are probably going to be like okay what's the problem with that i don't see an issue
1: yeah i think it's more when you get that visualization in of the data and not just oh yeah they have this data it's like this ambiguous idea but seeing how often and the frequency and the amount i think is where the difference might come in
2: i, I think okay. you gotta hit, hit people a little more raw i think most times i think. The, the way I've seen it, at least the past few years, in my experience with complaining to, to family members and such, of, you know, don't you understand? This is bad. You know, you need your privacy. And I'm going, ah, doesn't matter. As I think you can look at like Hong Kong right now. It's a really fascinating type of look into technology versus, uh, I don't know if you want to call China an authoritarian state, but a, a very good government. <laughs> I, I don't I, I, I want to. I want to stay alive, so I'll just say what they are. <laughs> all right, a enough. bit more controlling than other governments, but you know, there was a fascinating paper on—not paper, but an article on how one of the people who are using Telegram, like all these people using Telegram, one of the uh, group organizers was de-anonymized and the police arrested him. Right. Um, so I think people have this really weird notion that while there are some privacy leaks, they don't really grasp what that means until your privacy is kind of really a matter of life and death. Till you show people like. If it's not a life or a death situation, this is so intrusive that, you know, when people are running stingrays through your neighborhood, which is uh, the thing that catches your phone calls and text messages and crap, you know, it doesn't sound that bad. We can go, well, you know, they're just looking for the bad guys. But most times those those normal people conversations are never just filtered out, right? They don't just go, oh, well, I know Jim Bob's a real good guy. He works at the deli market, so we'll just we'll toss his messages away. It doesn't happen like that with collection. You know, everything is taken. And then, you know, all those things that maybe are a bit embarrassing, you you know, send too many pictures of your butt or something silly that, you know what I mean, you realistically wouldn't want out there are now at the hands of possibly someone you don't want it at. And I think that's kind of trying to show people the escalation outside of just well, Facebook knows when you're sitting at a cafe, people don't really give a crap. Um, But I do think Snowden raised the valid point, though, is if people had the option to choose not to do that, of course, why would I want, you know, some company Knowing all this stuff, and I think the more concerning part is not just the Facebook or Apple's. I think it's all the weird shadow companies too. All these advertising companies that have shitloads of data on you. They're built easily into mobile platform or uh, mobile phones, and you have no way to control what they can use, what they can see, or even you know if they can retain your data. Um, so I think that's my big frustration. It's not just the big phone companies and stuff like that, but you know the the just sheer amount of actors that are going after your privacy, whether it's advertising companies, big platforms, governments. I mean, it's just insanity. It really is insanity.
0: I mean, I'd say hell, even Facebook is one of those weird shadowy companies you were talking about. I mean, just look at, you know, stuff like that, uh, Cambridge Analytica shit that was going on, you know? Uh, And I think there was another thing where like, they released some shadow app to certain people that they could install that would, Secretly send their data and return for some monetary well, incentive. Well, it wasn't. I, I forget secretly. what it was called, but like you know, these companies are just. It, well,
1: that, that wasn't secretly though. I just and sorry for the people actually listening to the podcast. I had unmuted myself on there, but not so Specter could hear me. uh But yes, yeah, so <coughs> that wasn't a secret thing that had happened. um That was basically Facebook had marketed after. Uh, essentially, it worked as a VPN for teens. To get their yeah, information, um, yeah. as far as I'm aware, that wasn't strictly speaking a secret or subtle attempt. Like it was pretty clear that, that they were trying to take get information out of it. Um, and then there was, of course, backlash once you know more people heard about it. So Bike Shop Guru does mention, you know, clear your cookies, go to your bank's website, and look at your cookies again. You know how many cookies and which cookies are loaded when you load your bank website. And I mean that's a fair point um that isn't a very good visualization though to kind of share with people in general obviously people kind of know what they're looking at understand what cookies are even doing but you know somebody who isn't too technical maybe isn't going to understand that um you also mentioned there why does Facebook need to know when I go to my bank you know some websites force you to load them or will sorry will not load if you have Facebook block. I mean, that's just, I think, really illustrating how important the tracking has become to some companies. Uh, but, I mean, that's not something I can really show and have a non-technical user really understand.
2: I mean, he, he did raise a really fascinating point, that Even a non-technical user, I think, could understand is that, like, even when you change your uh, SIM card, right, you're still very attributable to that phone right? So even if you switch that out and you get a new phone number, you can still very easily, right? And obviously for sometimes not nefarious reasons, if you download a a phone app, you know, and you want to retain access through your phone, you know, a lot of times, of course, you wouldn't want to change too much. You want to still be able to say, I'm the same person. I just have a different number. But I would say, I I, I still think it's, if you go and show people the things that are, you know, and Snowden, I don't know if he touched on it. I'd, I'd be interested if he did is, The things that aren't just like crazy nation state surveillance, but like, again, talking about the private company, look at all these weird, um, you know, retail outlets and other types of places. I think like target does it where they have like Bluetooth that is constantly scanning to see who's walking where I think even using Wi-Fi to see like where you walk in a store, what things you stop at the most and wait, and then go and plug that into, well, we know this phone. Every time it comes around, it seems to really enjoy going to the, you know, beer section or whatever. Um, and then being able to relate that information to like who you associate with, right? So then they can go and say, well, I can determine relationships off of who you're around constantly, what you shop for, what you do. Like it, and it's really just, I think it's just creepy. And I'm getting a little too ranty, but uh, anti ranty, but yeah, I, I, I mean, would say it is
1: creepy though. Like, there's, I think the classic example of that is I want to say Target had sent like a uh flyers to some guy's daughter about either like a newborn or like pregnancy related uh before father actually knew oh yeah she was pregnant (laughs) but you know the store knew that and i want to say it was target i may be mistaken about that but that was just you know through some of that tracking i don't remember all the details so i'm not going to attempt to say you know exactly how they knew uh, but that was one of the examples that I remember actually having covered back when I was in the university in my information security class as we talked about that case in particular.
0: Yeah, I, I, I did just want to touch some, on something you said there, Auntie, about the tracking of uh, devices, even after you've changed your phone number, or your SIM card and stuff like that. Uh, Snowden actually does talk a little bit about that in this interview. He talks about uh, how they track like IMEI and stuff like that uh you know the individual device identification numbers and stuff like that uh so you know I, I think i think everyone should should give this podcast a bit of a listen uh especially if you're not too familiar with the snowden leaks that happened uh a couple of years ago you know i th- i think it's uh a, a little bit enlightening
1: perhaps i mean i think it definitely plays to the people who already know and we're kind of listening to hear Snowden on something. Um, it does, but it's definitely I mean, it, more I'm not accessible. sure it would be my go, like, I don't know what my go-to recommendation would be for kind of just somebody who isn't uh, too aware on the privacy side of things. I'm not sure, just because this does kind of ramble a bit on other um, adjacent topics. I mean, it's fine for something like it's, it's very easy to listen to, and I quite enjoy listening to it. It's just, you know, if you're trying to expose somebody to somebody non technical to that privacy aspect, yes and no. Like, I, I'm not saying it's a bad choice. I'm just not, like, I feel like there's probably something better. I don't know what that is, but at least that's kind of my feeling is there's probably something that maybe does so a little bit better than this does. But at the same time, obviously, he is trying to reach out to those that listen to the Joe Rogan experience. So, I mean, I have to imagine that includes people that aren't super privacy conscious.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, I just want like, the only reason I was saying that was he does make it very accessible. You know, he doesn't go too technical on anything. Uh, he keeps it pretty, you know, a uh, surface level. So it's a bit, yeah, you know, for sure. it's, it, like you said, it's it's easier to listen to. Um, So, we'll move on from that and we'll talk about the checkmate exploit. So we talked about this a few weeks ago. uh, As he said,
1: you know, Apple, you know, doing it better.
0: Yeah. Apple doing (laughs) it better. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So we, we talked about checkmate a few weeks ago, but we didn't know too many technical details. Uh, You know, I obviously, I looked at the exploit code, but it's a bit hard to understand if you're not uh, an Apple person, right? Like Apple devices are kind of like their own world. If you don't do them a ton, you're not going to understand a lot of what's going on. So this write-up is kind of more uh, friendly to people who don't do a lot of Apple stuff. So I wanted to give it a bit of a shout-out. Uh, it talks about the boot ROM and a little bit about how it works. Uh, it was released by a guy named Alex Standy on uh, Haber. I've actually never heard of this, uh, this site before, but uh, it's like I've, I've glanced through the write-up and it looks like a pretty good write-up. Um, as a basic summary, you know, there's you know it has usb capability and there's one mode that's accessible from dfu which is basically the like recovery mode and that's control transfers uh and there's three stages to that there's setup data and status and there's basically a use after free with how they handle the packets because you can uh kind of reboot into another instance of dfu mode keeping the same uh state but being able to write to that uh like that memory so that's how the the bug works uh, so I, I don't know if you guys managed to check that out too much. But I mean, I, I
1: gave just... it a read over. Like you said, I, I mean, the Apple stuff is reasonably dense if you don't do it. And I don't know, Mobile's never been a huge interest of mine. So, I mean, I scanned over it. I won't say I read it in depth. You know, it seems like a good write up. Uh, you're saying it's good. Like, you know, I'm going to say people should probably read it, but I can't really comment too much on it.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is a little bit there is a bit of a barrier to entry like it does use some terms uh that it doesn't really explain and stuff like that so if you're not if you haven't done some basic exploitation you might be a little bit lost here i, I do just want to say that uh so you know just be
2: aware of that really i mean i'm, I'm pretty stupid but i i, I get I think, <laughs> a gist of it so you know and i i think you're right though this this was i didn't read the full thing um because it does get very very deep i think at one point uh, especially I wasn't very familiar with like DFU related to Apple and all this craziness, but I did want to ask, since you may know more about the Spectre, or maybe Z even, um, you know, I, I heard people talking about now that they have this, um, oh, man, I'm having a brain dead moment, but like there was something they could make now leveraging this, right? Was it to, uh, boot whatever you wanted onto this or what is the full implication of this? Obviously it can't be patched, right? I, I think most people gather that, but what is the full, Usability of this.
0: I mean, the main thing is you have you have access uh, in the boot chain, and what that kind of grants is, you know, it's not persistent, at least not yet. Uh, but you can boot, you know, your own kernel image, stuff like that. Uh, you can boot with uh, flags set that after the device is booted, you can't change them, and that unlocks like a lot of debugging capability and stuff like that. And you can overwrite some, like, uh, interrupt vectors. So what makes that uh, useful, like, why that's useful, is for a little while now, iOS devices have had something called KTRR, kernel text read-only region. Uh, It used to be called kernel patch protection, but now it's, like, hardware-enforced, and it's it's pretty difficult to get around. And it's basically a protection so that even if you get, uh, like, a kernel exploit, you still can't patch the kernel because there's this, you know, hardware check running every like so many you know seconds or whatever it is or not seconds probably like milliseconds and it's checking the kernel's integrity so one thing you get with something like checkmate is you can overwrite that vector entirely and just disable that feature so you don't have to rely on data only attacks anymore for like jailbreaks and stuff you can just go straight for the kernel text so that's like that's one of the implications on that. And I did actually want to bring something up around that because uh I'm just trying to find it now. I think it was actually on project 0. Uh but there was somebody who today I think released a kernel debugger uh based on uh Checkmate. It's called KTRW. And uh, I'll I'll bring it up on the on the stream. Uh let me see here. Yeah, so October 28th. So this was just published today. So this is a good example of what you were talking about asking like, you know, capability wise what this is capable of. This is one tool that's been released by uh, Brandon Azad of uh, Project Zero for doing kernel debugging and stuff like that. So it it opens it up to more research as well, which is another good point, Uh, both for, you know, good actors and bad
2: actors. Was this how long ago, or how long after when they released all those iOS uh, vulnerabilities was this? Uh, which, which vulnerabilities are you talking about? Oh No, it says here the, on June 16th, I discovered that the A11 saw, blah, blah, blah. I, I just remember them releasing, and it looks like maybe the I thought they released like a big old list of iOS vulnerabilities um, not too long ago. But maybe I'm just misremembering that. Okay, so...
0: I think I know which ones you're talking about. So, this, this boot ROM issue was actually fixed a few years ago. Uh, I think it was fixed two years ago. Uh, AxiomX actually found the bug through patch diffing. So, it's not like a a zero day, but the problem is, because it's a chip issue, uh, like, it's in the boot ROM, uh, it affects almost all devices, except for the very newest ones, like the uh, iPhone 11 or whatever isn't affected. But, like, Almost every version before that is. So it's not a zero day, but it still affects a lot of people because most people don't upgrade their phones until every two years. Um, one thing I will say on that, though, as an addendum is, you know, it's not a bug that can be hit, like, remotely or anything. It You know, this is mostly for people who would want to compromise their device to do something cool with it. It's not really an attack vector for malware or anything like that
2: i'm excited i'm I'm ready for a new jailbreak. That's all i know i I haven't done that since what twenty eleven somewhere in there I remember Presidia and all that, so I'm kind of excited for maybe a new wave of jailbreaking you this know?
0: this is the first boot rom bug that's been released in a decade. This is the first like exploit of its kind in a decade, which is crazy, so yeah, I mean there's throughout probably the rest of the year, you know there's gonna be a lot of really cool releases related to this. Uh, that I think uh, we may want to bring up for people interested in iOS research. And, uh, you know, this is one of many, the the KTRW uh, release here by Azad. So I did just want to bring that up. So did you guys have anything to add, to add on with the uh, Checkmate write-up? No. Notice I noticed that I didn't? No? I
1: think we can, you know, move on to... I... <sighs> I don't even know how to go and transition into this one there, but uh, the <laughs> cash yeah, poison of denial transition. of service. Yeah. I mean there's there's no easy link like about Apple or something to Well, I guess you know, Amazon also starts and Amazon or also starts with A and I'm sure I can come <laughs> with something there, but uh There you go. But yeah, so the gist of this it's I think this was kind of a fun little attack. Um it takes advantage of uh, cache poisoning, as you can probably guess by the name. Um, it takes advantage of different uh, requirements between the cache server and the origin server uh, to kind of create a request that will go through the cache, but will result in an error on the actual origin server um, that ends up getting cached by the cache server. So then, you know, everybody that goes to request that same page a little bit later gets us cached air and can't access whatever the actual content is that was wanted um and just kind of a really quick side note one interesting thing about cache poisoning is that it's a way that you can abuse issues that usually seem somewhat unexploitable so you know issues that require modifying certain headers like you know one example might be like a user agent that gets reflected in the page and cross-site script you can use cache poisoning to exploit some of those by getting your attack request cached um not quite related to this just want to kind of mention that it is a bit related just in general with cache poisoning uh with this paper and like obviously they've it's kind of a name thing they've got a website so there's that going for it
0: Every Um, good exploit or every good, you know, attack has a website. It's a a known fact.
2: The logo could be a bit better, but yeah. So I mean, it's
1: (laughs) what I was going to mention though is like essentially this paper goes pretty in depth on or very systematically looks at kind of different CDNs and the or major CDNs and the caches. Default settings and your usual origin servers and their default settings um on. so one of the first things it does in the paper I don't think the I think the website goes in a little bit different of a different order, yeah, uh but in the paper, one of the first things they do is they're looking at um the different response types that the cache server will actually cache, and following spec, things like 400 bad request shouldn't be cached. Um, but yet Amazon CloudFront goes ahead and, you know, if the server gives it a 400, it's just going to cache that because why not? I mean, that's probably right. Um, <laughs> so it it actually enumerates like Cloudflare also caches a 403 forbidden. Uh, CloudFront, as I mentioned, has the 400 requests. Uh, which is particularly of interest in this paper because of how easy it is to get that bad request header response in a lot of setups. Uh, Other things they cache that shouldn't are like the 500, the internal server error, 502, bad gateway, 503, service unavailable, 504, gateway timeout. Um, And Azure does all of those 500 ones, and they also do um, HTTP version not available. That's 505. Um, so yeah, they kind of cover, they co- They enumerate a lot of information here. And the core of this comes down to introducing kind of three different attack methods. Uh, the first one being they're calling HMO or HTTP method override. Uh, this kind of happens in a sense at the framework level rather than, uh, the origin server itself. And that's just because certain frameworks will support providing, Like, they'll support you sending a get request, but then you can provide something like an xhttp header that says post, and then we'll just treat the request as though it was a post that came into that page. Um, And if the cache doesn't deal with that header and isn't aware that that's actually a post, it'll treat it like a get, so you can make a request like get index, set the method to post using that header, Um, and then, of course, you'll get a response like, hey, this page, index.html, doesn't support posting to it. So you just get that uh, error response that ends up getting cached. Uh, so you can just send that one request to the server; it gets cached. Nobody can access the page again. Uh, the next attack they kind of cover is the HTTP header oversize, or HHO, uh, which kind of comes down to the difference between the caching server and the origin server's limits on how big the header section of the request can be. I guess the default is for around 8 kilobytes for many web servers like nginx will support like 8 kilobytes whereas cloudfront as one of their examples uh has a limit of 24 kilobytes. So if you generate a request bigger than with more than 8 kilobytes worth of headers uh but less than 24 kilobytes it'll go through the cache hit the origin server uh and that air uh, which is a uh, 400 bad request, will come back and get cached. Uh, so, again, it I mean, th- it's all fairly easy to understand. Um, and then the last attack they do is the HTTP meta character attack, or HMC. Uh, essentially, getting that bad request by including dangerous meta characters within one of their headers. Um, so, dangerous meta characters, that's your, you know, carriage return in your new line the stuff that you'll see in, like, response-splitting attacks. So, you know, WAFs or some uh, services will go ahead and reject that if they see those um, in certain parts are encoded within part of the headers. Um, again, giving you that bad request, that ends up getting cash on the way back out.
0: Yeah, I think the, the HMC, the meta-character attack, was probably the most uh, interesting to me, just because it's not one that, you know you really consider like it's easy to you know forget about that kind of stuff you know oh no i mean, I
1: mean response splitting a valid attack to test for i mean it should be part of your test to you know put in new lines into that i mean like i said response splitting is a well-known attack i haven't seen response splitting in a number of years but you know, at one point it was i won't say popular like i don't think it was ever like a top 10 or something but like it's always been around. I mean cash Boy's thing here, like, you know, isn't new. No. I've even seen kind of this idea flow float around before. But it is a very comprehensive comprehensive paper.
0: Yeah, I mean I think I probably found the uh like this page. I didn't read the paper, I, I read the like the more, you know, uh f- eyes friendly report that we're showing on on the stream. I think I probably found it a little bit more enlightening just because I don't really do a lot of web stuff. I know you have a lot more experience in that area, so, you know, uh, you probably knew a lot more about what was going on in this paper before going into it, so, you know, I I probably found some things interesting that you're like, oh, I knew about that 10 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, fair
1: enough. I mean, like I said, it's not... cash poisoning itself isn't a new idea, Uh, but this is... These attacks are all very simple, very straightforward, very easy to get working. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what's kind of novel here. I mean, the attacks themselves—they're being enumerated, it's being say like using this to do that. That said, I believe from the paper, the only server that actually, um, that actually cached those four hundreds was uh, Amazon CloudFront. Boy, they, We're they really right taking Amazon list. to
0: Good task Lord. on this uh, podcast, man. <laughs> um, I kind of
1: want to validate that, but I don't have the paper. I guess it is loading in the browser here, but it's uh, we can't do our usual magic on these shares.
2: Uh,
1: yeah, so cool. I've got it kind of up on the stream, though. 16 so pages. Wow,
0: well. that is a pretty long paper. Yeah, well, this is
1: particular. Th- In particular, they're going through kind of the different error codes and the different caching servers and seeing, you know, what cache is what. And, yeah, so that 400 bad request is only by uh, CloudFront. Nothing else is caching that. And a lot of these are causing um, 400 requests. So, I mean, it seems like a simple solution for Amazon is just going to be don't cache. 400 responses which i mean by spec shouldn't be getting cached um any of these that you see with kind of the red uh indicates that it's uh caching something that shouldn't be cached
0: okay so oh okay i was about to say why didn't they put it on the 400 but they did i just uh i'm a little blind (laughs) okay yeah so they, they do have it there
1: but yeah i mean obviously CloudFront is pretty heavily used I mean, that's Amazon, like, all of their service stuff ends up, you know, hitting CloudFront.
0: Okay. Uh, you, like they use you that. just quickly summarize what CloudFront is? Because I, I don't know too much about Amazon, like, infrastructure Cloudfront stuff. CloudFront is
1: basically their content delivery network.
0: Okay. Okay. That's what I was uh, wondering.
1: That's like, yeah. That's just Amazon CloudFront is their CDN uh, or their cache that, you know, everybody
0: can use. Okay. All right, yeah, I just wanted the clarification on that. I mean, yeah, if you're if you're not too well versed in web apps like me, you know, you'll probably find this uh paper or this, you know, the paper or the page uh pretty enlightening. If you're a master like Z though, you know, you might just uh you know, find it uh
1: No, it was still a great paper. Don't yeah, get me wrong great, on that. Yeah. Actually, for like especially, you know, for a named vulnerability, it's Pretty solid. I mean, to be fair, actually, a lot of the name vulnerabilities have also been very significant bugs. Uh, I'm not sure I would classify this, you know, and I mean, it's CP DOS, so it's just the name of the technique. But you can tell they're going for like that Heartbleed side idea. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. mean, but with that in mind, like I, this is significant. I think Amazon can definitely kind of patch this. Uh in terms of cloud front, and that takes care of a lot, but this whole idea it's nice to see that being enumerated and being looked at because uh, caching attacks are something I don't see a ton of obviously different things kind of pop up every now and again about different cache attacks uh but it's not it's also not something I've gotten to target a ton just with you know my work always being focused on the application layer and not on the deployment layer. It's not something I've gotten to deal with a ton is doing any sort of cache attacks. But um, it's... Yeah, I mean, it's a good paper. The attacks are kind of interesting. But if these are just the 400 responses, you know, CloudFront's the only one that was caching those. Yeah. Okay, uh, but the point. idea, you know, is, you know, getting some error response, you know, internal server error is, you know, a little bit more common to get also, which, you know, you could take this idea and
0: pretty easily apply to other techniques too. Okay. So, uh, you know, moving from the deployment layer to, uh, you know, some more server oriented stuff, we had the, the PHP FPM, uh, RCE. That uh, would you like to try out. and
1: pronounce that?
0: P- uh, H- ph ph M- visit M- H- M- F- M- yeah yeah i like i don't <laughs> even know try they, they try very hard thing? on on trying to make a cool name for that i don't know what dude. i
1: know there's got to be a meaning to it there's got to be something where they like th- there's got to be something to that name
0: i i don't see anything i'm looking i don't see anything explaining the name I, nothing
1: explains that. I mean, if it had to be anything, oh no. Does U I I Z does that mean anything? I don't. Let's
2: let's I, check I
0: know. this live. <laughs> <laughs> Is that maybe the author's name isn't that? No, uh,
1: I don't know. It apparently means we see in Bulgarian.
0: I mean, yeah. I wonder if that's just a coincidence or if that's what
2: they were going for.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Maybe the author from Bulgaria, and like it makes sense. Maybe. Uh, either way, I mean, I
0: I really like this phone. Okay, so you do have you do need to have like uh, Nginx and uh, PHP FPM with a certain configuration for it to work. Yes Though, as and no. I understand it's it, not it necessarily popular one.
1: It's not necessarily just nginx the example exploit was written for nginx and nginx just happens like there's one particular config issue that's commonly seen in nginx that maybe isn't so common in apache setups um so the misconfiguration or i mean let's talk about what the issue is first and that is it's an underflow in php fpm which is the uh fast cgi process manager basically rather than just starting up a brand new uh php instance every time it gets a request in and needs to execute the php file uh fast cgi is basically running a bunch of the instances and essentially just distributes it between one of the workers Um, I'm sure somebody can correct me on the actual technical details of how fast CGI works, but that's the gist of it. And the PHP FPM code um, has an underflow in it with the environment path info variable. Um, It ends up making this one assumption, and that is that the um, environment path info and the script path both have the same prefix or directory structure to them uh which is generally true that regex is you know trying to match exactly that um sorry the regex that's part of the misconfiguration uh which i'll touch on in just a moment but um it's generally true so like this isn't something that's caught really easily until you're able to break some the assumption elsewhere Uh, But it makes that assumption, so then it goes with the environment path info, takes that pointer and does some pointer arithmetic on it, just by adding however long that um, the script name path was, and just kind of adds that to get towards the end of the um, environment path info variable. Uh, So if you can break, if you can get environment path info to not match the uh, script path, uh, then it'll end up jumping ahead into... Whatever data is sitting there, in particular, it targets the uh, fast CGI's um, data segment, which is where it stores like a bunch of configuration variables and things like that. Uh, so, looking at what the actual issue is, and this is part of why I really like this tack is it's this piece of regex here. Um, what the problem is. And this is something, the reason why I kind of like this is this is one of those attacks that's reasonably common, or one of those vulnerabilities, sorry, that's reasonably common, but not always exploitable. Um, And that is using the um, carrot and the dollar sign as anchors, a lot of people will read that as start and end. Uh, But what that actually matches is the start and the end of a line. Um So, why that's important is because that still means there can be more text in the regex after or before it that aren't getting matched because uh, that dollar sign will end up matching the new line character. Uh, When you usually, if you've got user input and you're trying to regex over it and you want to match, make sure the entire input matches this, or you want to get the entire input as part of the match, which is what this thing wants to do, you want to use backslash capital A and backslash capital Z. Uh, that matches start and end of input rather than start and start and end of line. Usually it doesn't make a difference because people don't have new lines in their input. Um, or at least where this is being used, it doesn't usually make a difference. And there is multi-line mode for regex, which can act, uh, which changes the how these two anchors work. It does, you know, basically makes it work like A and Z. Uh, but just because of that... When you put a, if you get a new line in the path, uh, this regex will just fail and give an empty string
0: because it doesn't end up matching everything. Okay. Uh, One thing I do want to say is uh, I think you summarized it like a hundred times better than this readme does. (laughs) Because this readme. Oh, the readme has
1: very little information. I had to go and dig into. Um more of the php bug report and stuff to actually kind of figure out what the issue was i readme read me doesn't sorry go ahead
0: oh uh you can go ahead Uh, i was just gonna say something at the end
1: yeah well i still have more to say about the attack because there's one other cool part about how this worked um so i mentioned that it's able you're able to get the pointer into that fcgi data segment uh so what's done there? is then you're able to use the path that it tries to write into the environment path, or the script name that trusts right write there. Uh, you're able to use that to inject uh, new PHP value entries into the data segment. So PHP value entries are um, essentially, this is why it uses to actually get the control or code execution. Because at this point, you don't have code execution. You just have that underflow. So you're able to inject these PHP values, which essentially control the configuration values like anything that's in your php.ini you can set using uh these php values so and that's what this attack ends up doing is it injects a number of config values uh there's an attack.go file from the exploit um and it has the chain here so you know it enables short open tags html errors include path and down here at the bottom it does the extension directory as you know the short open tag equal that just means echo whatever the output is back tick so it's going to execute as a command and then get um the extension is uh, you know get parameter a close back tick close tag that's how it actually gets code execution uh which definitely led to a little bit of uh, misunderstanding as to what this exploit did i definitely saw more than a few people that thought you know somehow in php if you just added a equals some <laughs> command it would totally execute it uh, yeah. which is not what happens you have to go through this whole exploit but once this has been set up every request if you do a equals um and a command will execute it
0: yeah so the a the a get parameter is more of a uh, primitive than it is a yeah well it's it's the code that's been entered
1: like it could be anything like you can insert whatever code you wanted there they just happened to choose that as an example uh but yeah i kind of like this whole attack sequence there and apparently this is a fairly old well-known thing but obviously it requires controlling the config if you control the config you all like in theory like you're assuming somebody that controls the config already has server access and stuff so you know, this isn't really hardened, and nobody really cared about it. Uh, this just kind of found a
0: way to exploit that remotely. So, I, uh, y- you know, after you explained it and you highlighted that chain, I thought of something that I don't think is really mentioned anywhere. And that's that uh, since you have access to the uh, PHP config, you could actually modify the blacklist. To, like, you know, if, like, the exec function, for example, is in the blacklist, you could just overwrite in the config and take that out. And then use the exec function to get command, uh, you know, com- command execution. Yeah, you would be able to use that here if you actually had that. Yeah, so that that's an even more powerful attack, I think, because you can evade any, like, sandboxing quotation marks that would be in place there.
1: Yeah, I mean, you kind of have to look this, though, more like the binary style attack. Which is getting, code, like getting native code execution. In which case, you know, that blacklist really doesn't matter anyhow.
2: Um, yeah, they just, just happen to use this kind of
1: access. internal state to do it. Um, I feel like if you worked on this exploit, maybe you'd be able to actually get you know, proper code execution. But, you know, why bother when you have this?
0: Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I
1: I thought it was an interesting tack. I wasn't a fan of the FUD that went around with it, but just, you know, seeing that regex thing actually used and just the means of getting control, I thought was really interesting.
0: Yeah. So what I wanted to say earlier, um, and accidentally ended up cutting you off was that I know you did, I think it was that Y Combinator post. I think you should do a, like a full write up of this. I think that'd be cool. Would you be able to do like, I don't know if, you know, I know you're busy and stuff like that, but you know. I think that'd be cool if you could do a write-up about it, because there's not a lot of...
1: I mean, if we eventually get our it. blog going, perhaps. That said, go, a lot yeah. of the information that I pulled out here is coming from just the bug report.
0: So, like, it's not... I don't know, like, there's not... Honestly, other than what you explained and your Y Combinator post, which you linked to me yesterday... Um, you really, from what I understood, you really had to dig into it to really understand what the attack was. There wasn't a lot of information out on it, so I think it's, yeah, it definitely still a lot took room some effort, yeah. So,
1: um, that said, I guess uh, this is actually partially discovered by uh, during real world CTF, um, so scam CTF, <laughs> just kidding. No, well, I mean, they found a real Oday in PHP, so there you go, real world.
0: Yeah, no, I'm just saying scam because, like, it's, like, a way... I think it's a way to get free zero days to pay for it. <laughs>
1: so. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. Oh. Uh, but, yeah, so... I mean, there might be a write-up related to it from that. I mean, obviously, I believe this guy did some work on uh, the exploit as it was discovered then. But he does make mention that, you know, somebody
0: found this during real-world CTF. Okay. So do you want to talk about some light attacks? Uh, some lighter attacks, sure. <laughs> yeah, some lighter attacks. Yeah, yeah uh, this. Uh, so you linked this paper, uh, information leakage via smart lights. So, um, before jumping into like you know what it talks about and stuff, what are you? What are your overall thoughts on the paper? I'm curious.
1: I just thought this was a fun paper. Like, I I know I use the word fun a lot to describe some of (laughs) these things, but that's what this is. I mean, and I mean, that's why I love the podcast. It's it's just finding these cool, these fun little things. Is this like a practical attack that I can see myself ever pulling off? Yes, actually, I do totally see a use for one of these. Um, And that is the last one. Um, Is kind of a technique to do covert data exfiltration using uh, LifeX bulbs. Uh, so, the idea is LifeX bulbs, and presumably other bulbs too, just don't have any permissions on them. They do specifically mention that Philips Hue, the other bulb that they were testing with, does do it. Or does have uh, some authentication, so you can't do this with it. Uh, but, with those LIFX bulbs, an attacker on the network can control the light, and thus also use it to exfiltrate data. Um, and just the gist of it. You know, pretty much what you would expect. You can use kind of the visual or infrared spectrum, and you just have the light like, kind of go on with uh, their example in terms of, you know, being able to detect it. They basically can exfiltrate uh, two bits at a time with, you know, zero, zero being off, uh, one, one being completely on, and then zero, one and one, zero kind of being half or a quarter way in between, or yeah. whatever that division would be. But um, so. Really simple attack. I could totally see that being used as just kind of a really cool part of like a red team exercise. You broke in, you planted a light and a drop box on the network, and you exfil data that way. Like, I could totally see that being used by a red teamer out there. But, you know, real world,
0: I'm not too worried about it. So I, I think it is worth mentioning uh you mentioned the one attack there that is one of three attacks the other two attacks deal with uh inferring audio and video playback with uh I think they call it systematic observation analysis of multimedia visu- visualization so it's yeah. you know like um you know you'll see some of those like speakers and stuff like that that have like uh like those audio graphs that like go with the music like the beats and stuff like that i think that's what they're like mainly talking about there which obviously you know that's you know you can you can infer what song somebody's listening to i mean you can probably already do that cuz most people use that spotify discord integration so yeah so i mean
1: what they do is pretty much what you said they're kind of doing song or video identification through that light visualization um and basically what that is is they're just translating the brightness of the light to the sound amplitude which lets them do beat detection Oh, uh, which you can then use to detect songs.: Yeah, um, And I mean, it does the same idea with video also. Again, just brightness leads to amplitude, leads to beat detection. Um, what they couldn't or what made it a little bit more difficult is when it had random hues. Uh, they do mention that. The paper actually like, gets a little bit technical when it starts dealing with exactly how they're normalizing the data and figuring things out but you know that's the gist of it louder the sound brighter the light
0: so i did i did find something a little odd with the paper so obviously the infrared attack sounds a lot cooler than the first two attacks um my issue with it is on page uh on page 11 they have this graph right and uh oh i I forgot i can't draw on these but they have a graph that shows like Uh, the error rate with the distance of the light from whatever they're trying to exfiltrate data from and they have it in terms of meters now they use this bit error rate and they have like 0.1 0.2 0.3 and those numbers look really small like 0.1 is obviously a pretty small number but you know what you have to consider is that that's a bit error level not a byte error level so if you go down to like where they have a text example original text and reconstructed text uh, that's, only, that's at 15 meters away, so it is a little bit far away, but you can see, like, there is quite a bit of errors in that reconstructed text, so, you know, I think it's worth mentioning that, you know, the more, like, the farther away the light is, there is quite a lot of error there, even though the numbers might suggest that there isn't, because yeah, it's, it's at the it's, bit level. It's also You're worth mentioning,
2: like... Closet. What? Sorry <laughs> I was making a stupid joke.
1: Continue. Well, I mean, you can make a stupid joke, but I was just going to mention there that the like it goes up to point five, which is effectively guesswork, because I mean your max value for the error is one. Like that's your max error. So point five when you only have a one or a zero or a fifty-fifty chance, and it has a fifty error fifty percent error rate. Yeah is pretty pretty much just you know the same as guessing and yeah like i don't see this as being particularly practical at least not in this example i mean if somebody were to work on it probably could do more And they do actually mention some of the other related work which is just you know information leakage through optical side channels um and they mention um like figuring things out from like the flickering of a tv screen in another paper yeah, so they mentioned this other researcher was aimed to infer, like, the video being watched using the changing light characteristics observable through a target's window. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of errors, I imagine. Like, you know, if the government or somebody were to really put some effort in, they can clean that up a fair bit.
0: There's probably easier ways, though.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you never know, though. I mean, obviously there are there are other techniques that come to mind for sure that would probably be more accurate but like i said it's just kind of fun and i like the covert xl thing yeah i mean again like can i see that like somebody really using that it feels like there are other ways to get the data out for sure but you know could i see like somebody on a red team just doing that because they could absolutely
0: uh the, the one attack that this reminds me a lot of is uh you remember that hdd uh indicator light attack where they tried to exfil data by just the blinking yeah uh, hard drive indicator that that like this reminded me a lot of that, like same you know in terms of like practicality and stuff like that,
2: I think yeah, it's pretty fair. similar,
0: yeah, yeah, that's fair, all right, so let's talk about some more practical attacks, and that is some x x e and yeah, uh, so... v s code eclipse other. Text editor or uh, code editors, we should say.
1: Yeah, well, so this uh, the issue itself actually lives in the um, XML language server protocol, and to be clear, this is XXE to RC. in most cases, because this isn't a language server, it's on your desktop, so VS Code, Eclipse, things like that, which are going to read and parse XML files. Um, in particular, this lib, uh, sorry, LSP for XML language server protocol for XML. Um, if you're not familiar, language server is, I think the idea was first kind of pitched by Microsoft. But the idea is basically pulling out a lot of those ID-specific and language-specific features into kind of its own little server that can be maintained by another group. So a lot of languages now will have or will maintain a language server protocol or like just a language server protocol server. Um and that way the ides can just go communicate with the lsp and you know get information like hey where's this definition or where's the definition for this variable in this project uh is this syntax right things like that it can just query the language server and get that without needing to implement it itself it just implements support for language servers and it does the rest uh so what was found i mean pretty classic there's nothing really in here that made it difficult to exploit in if you had an XXE in your XML file, then the XML uh language server uh would check if it's in the cache, which was basically just a directory uh folder with the host name and then path to the file, kind of going from there. Um so if you can probably guess already, you if you control the XML file, you control what host it's going to look at, you control the path of the file it's going to look for. Essentially, you get arbitrary file write, but not overwrite, um, due to there being a path traversal in that also, which is, I guess, kind of the critical thing. Path traversal, in addition to it, actually checking the XXE file. Um, you, know, you get an overwrite, so write a file into the Windows startup, and there you go. You have kind of persistent code execution on some victim machine because they opened your XML file. It's like decent write-up. Um, the issue, as long as you understand what an XML, external XML entity is, is straightforward. I mean, there's nothing, the only thing that adds any complexity to this is the fact that, um, that cache is checked.
0: Yeah. So... Like you said, I mean, it's a pretty powerful primitive. You can't overwrite files. Uh, they also mention you obviously can't write files as a higher privilege than your user level. But, you know, arbitrary file write is still useful, of course. Um, yeah, and this does get execution by writing it into, uh,
1: like, the Windows startup folder. So, like, then as soon as the person reboots, they, you get execution of whatever binary you get downloaded into there. So, like, there is execution. It is at their user level, but from there, I mean, Windows Privilege Escalation isn't exactly a rare feat.
2: No. Uh,
0: I do want to say, like, maybe not specifically uh, for, like, VS Code and this attack. Um, XXE, like you were saying, it's a pretty straightforward vector. It's pretty popular. And it's one reason why I'm kind of worried that a lot of products are switching to things like Electron. Uh, I think like these issues are going to get nothing but even more common, just because more things well, are starting to switch over just, to use.
1: Just to be clear, XXE is not the same as XSS, Oh, uh, which Electron's no, but... more vulnerable to. XXE is specifically XML. Okay, fair like, point. You're not seeing XXE in just your random web app, unless it's
0: also using XML, and XML use on a whole is on the down. Okay, fair point. So, yeah, I guess I was more thinking about XSS giving execution. Um, but still, like, like you said, it's a pretty straightforward attack, so, uh, has it been, did they mention, uh, where it was patched? Oh yeah, they do, okay, they say at the end here, uh, if you're using that server to update it to 0.9.1, so, uh, it, it has been fixed as of, uh, this month, I think? Is yeah, it this I'm, month? oh I'm no, it was a couple have... months ago. Uh, sorry, what was that? No,
1: that, that, that should have been... Uh, the patch review would
0: emerge on October 8th. Okay, so, you know, the reason I'm confused is because they have their date format backwards. For me. (laughs) And here I thought you were Canadian. I mean, you know, I'm I'm Canadian, but I use the US format.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but, I mean, you can tell because there is no 30th month
0: of the year. Yeah, fair enough. (laughs) <laughs> it's just uh, the, those date formats well at, at
1: least in my no I, I totally agree i mean we can have a discussion about date formats i mean <laughs> it is a little bit confusing but yeah so that is october
0: 10th okay the so good point okay I, I wasn't clear there all right so you want to oh so this was a last minute topic that you brought up so i actually didn't get a chance to look at this at all yeah so i mean it's exactly
1: what it says in the title pwn to own bringing ICS into the pwn to own world. Essentially, so ICS Industrial
0: Control Systems, right? Yeah, or, they've okay.
1: partnered with Rockwell primarily. Uh, looks like there are a couple other companies providing things here. Uh, but basically they've introduced uh, the contest, five new categories, uh, Control Server, whatever, OPC, Unite Architecture. They actually do describe all of these categories a bit too. Uh, but essentially, 20000 bucks for remote code execution, uh, 10000 for info disclosure, 5000 for a crash or denial of service if unauthenticated. Uh, I mean, but that's the gist of it. They've introduced this into Pone Own.
0: Okay. I'm a little bit surprised they're not paying a little bit more for information disclosure. Just because info disclosure in something like ICS is probably one of the hardest things to get. Just because of the nature of it? Um. Yeah,
1: I I mean, I was a little bit surprised that these were all a bit low, but at the same time, I think industrial control systems kind of have the reputation of being reasonably insecure. So maybe yeah. if they prove to be more difficult, we'll find them upping the bounty in future years. But given, given their reputation, I kind of understand the hesitancy to commit too much here although I think they also did just yeah they've alloc- oh they say they've allocated more than two hundred and fifty thousand cash prizes uh for some reason I thought that was the allocate just that uh so yeah, I guess they won't max out on it um uh, but
0: that is across all categories though, not just i c s at least that's what it uh it well no, to it say.
1: says across the five categories these this is the five categories, the control server like the i c s five categories.
0: Okay. Okay, I see. I didn't okay. I thought it was only the, the categories listed on that uh that payout sheet. Okay. Okay, that makes more sense. I was gonna say two fifty two hundred fifty thousand for like across the board is kinda low. Okay, so that makes more sense.
2: Yeah, yeah so, just go ahead. I'm sorry, I was just gonna say out of curiosity, I mean I've never literally done anything ICS related. How do you test for this? Is the software open source? Is Yeah, no. so they are providing
1: some uh, VMs. Uh, not okay. open source, as far as I'm aware. Yeah, I was but it say, does most look the like they smart. are providing uh, vulnerable machine or not <laughs> virtual machines that can be run and tested against.
2: Okay, so I, I only skimmed through, and I was trying to figure out where you test these things. I'm like, I'm assuming they're not still having you live fire against the system. They provide something.
0: <laughs> I mean, like, I, yeah. I, w- I was going to say like that is actually a point uh, to bring up is that the thing with ICs is. Uh, there is a little bit of a barrier to entry, and that like it is a little bit hard to test with, right? Because it's more, it's like it's specialized hardware and stuff. So it's good that they're providing VMs. It's good that you brought up that up because I didn't, uh, I didn't see that when I was scanning through it. So uh, you know, there you go. That's how they're going to be testing yeah. for it. So
1: yeah. So I mean, it's definitely a good move for Rockwell to get you know this testing done for them. I have no idea what the contract looks like between Rockwell. And ZDI, I can't imagine it's just you know being handed over for free. I have to imagine there's some there's some agreement there because I mean ZDI's means like their business method is essentially selling information about O days. I mean, granted they do give it back to their vendors, but their big thing is kind of alerting their customers that uh,
0: O day exists. Oh yeah, absolutely, yeah. All right. So let's talk about some defenses. So, uh, we've got the analysis of Qualcomm secure boot chains. So I noticed this, uh, just scanning around, it's pretty recent. It was, uh, the 24th that this was put out. So Qualcomm, for those of you that don't know, they're an SOC manufacturer, a lot of androids and stuff like that run on Qualcomm chips. Uh, they, they have a pretty, uh, pretty shoddy reputation when it comes to security i think we even a few podcasts ago i think we even talked about a qualcomm issue didn't we Am i forget yeah anything? i
1: don't remember what the issue was but we have we've talked about qualcomm before
0: yeah like i think it might have been the wi-fi stuff uh but yeah they you know they do their chips aren't incredibly great in terms of security um but this article goes into how the boot chain works so you know it's it's per, it's fairly standard across most devices that the way that boot chains work is they do like multi-stage so each stage is a higher level of trust in the chain of trust than the one that comes after it and uh they use like rsa and stuff to verify the integrity of each stage before booting it so i actually don't know a whole lot about uh, the boot stage stuff just because it is you know, I obviously do low-level stuff. I mostly focus on kernel stuff, but boot—you know—boot-level stuff is even lower than that, right? You're getting into like, uh, you know, a lot lower level, is what I'll say. And this article goes quite in depth on how the boot stuff works in the context of Qualcomm chips. So I just wanted to kind of shout it out because uh, I think it is a good article for anybody interested in that kind of stuff to read. Uh, I don't know if you guys managed to check yeah, it out I,
1: I mean I gave it a read, but like you've kind of mentioned, it's at a lower level than what any of my work has been at uh so I'm not in a good position to really judge its quality
0: yeah i i mean i I think it's it's definitely worth checking out uh if you're if you're interested in getting into lower level stuff uh so just a just a quick shout out there, so uh we're we gonna talk about the xbox one. You guys, want to talk um, about that? Is, is that, that the next thing? no? I thought it was the secure. Oh yeah, it is secure, the secure cord. cord PCs. Okay, sorry, that's uh, that's a bit later on. I was getting ahead of myself there. All right, so Microsoft, uh, they talked about these new secure cord PCs. Uh, so, what were your thoughts on it? Z? because I know you had some some thoughts on it. Well, act- actually, I didn't have too many thoughts on it. Oh, okay. So, I mean, they talk about using. Uh, You know, increasing the security of devices that are used in critical industries. So some of these are like healthcare, financial, government. Uh, I think that's really good because we've seen a lot of attacks over the last couple of years targeting those industries. And they get hit hard, man, because like, uh, especially uh, medical, like health stuff. A lot of those devices, it's not easy to update them. I mean, they're uh, hit hard. Stuff like that. There's just no information here
1: about what they're doing. They're offering this secured core PC and they're talking about what's going to offer it. They're saying it's going to validate the firmware and they're sa- but like they don't have any new information. Uh this does use the um uh what was what were they calling it? The, basically this whole secure boo thing, like the SK init from AMD and oh yeah. Uh yeah, System they call it a- System Guard secure launch. Yeah. Um like you use that, but like there's no new information in this announcement that that's why i don't really have much to say is there's not
0: much new in this okay uh well i have a few things so one thing that seemed to recur a lot throughout the report is it seems that uh like they talk about this trusted platform module two um they've they're talking a lot more about monitoring providing more monitoring access to ensure that the system uh boot is like in and like ensuring its integrity you know what i mean um one thing i did want to say though is while this is cool and i think it's targeting industries that really need it um a lot of the issues that we've been seeing are higher level issues that this won't really do anything about you know, this is this is for protecting at like the low level, the binary level. Yeah, I mean, it's been said for
1: it's been said for years that we're going to start seeing more and more of these firmware issues and firmware level like uh rootkits and stuff. Uh, and we just haven't seen the uptick that's been predicted. That isn't to say it's not going to happen. And I definitely think it is going to happen as operating systems do harden themselves more and more. Like, I mean, this is a completely legitimate place do research and for Microsoft to be pushing into and to be getting ahead of uh you know looking to getting that protection in place now instead of later um like I mean I I have no issue with Microsoft doing it it's just you know this update doesn't really give me any new information that I'd want it's just it's going to protect against this it's going to do that
0: but it, it doesn't have any technical details yeah it's kind of vague uh but like i think this will help against ransomware attacks uh it just won't help against like data breaches and stuff like that so even
1: uh, ransomware i mean ransomware happens at that application level the file system it's in the operating system it's not necessarily encrypting your firmware there are i mean i mean yeah there are like we have seen some attacks that go after the firmware it's not unknown um, it's just we haven't seen that uptick that was definitely projected you know five, ten years ago that we were going to see it Um, we've definitely seen just more defenses coming off at the OS level and like you mentioned like withheld stuff like yeah okay firmware is definitely a threat uh, like I mean it this has a purpose to exist I'm definitely not debating that at all it's just you wish uh, there was
0: more info yeah Yeah. okay fair enough yeah i just wanted to say that like uh i think it's a, a good step but you know it doesn't it's like you said a lot of attacks aren't happening at the firmware level so i think there should be more focus on higher level issues
1: No, like uh, like i said reason. i'm not necessarily against microsoft doing it like it's not that they need to put more folks there like you do need to diversify your defenses you do need that defense in depth so like it's great that Microsoft's doing it. I just want more info. Okay. And to be fair, there is a decent amount of information about like the SK init and like the system guard secure launch. Like there there is information on those. It's just I don't quite get what the secured core is. Unless all this really is is just the merging of everything under one name. Which this very well might be. Like maybe that's they're calling, you know, these secured core computers. These laptops look like a lot of them were laptops are essentially just they have those security features that they previously mentioned, in which case I'm not sure if this is really worth talking too much about. Um, okay. Like, initially when I brought this up, I thought it was going to have more information.
0: Okay. I mean, I, I
1: keep hitting that same point, more information, more information, but, you know, I, I definitely was a bit disappointed when I started trying to dig into this.
2: Okay. I, I was just curious. Did we ever talk about the the I guess hacking group? Str- is it strontium? What, I don't even know what kind of name that is. But um, did we ever talk about that? Because I feel like this is the first time I've heard about them. Using I don't the think so. Vulnerabilities in um, malware in the wild. You know, like I see the only thing I wanted to talk about was I thought I was insane. I didn't realize over 2017, 2018, 2019, there was like four hundred each year firmware vulnerabilities disclosed. But I feel like I haven't really, outside of academia, really seen stuff in the wild until I just read that part about in late 2018. Some hacking No, I, I don't think stuff.
1: there have been a lot of in-the-wild firmware things. Like There are a handful, but the attack surface on the firmware for kind of wild exploitation is somewhat low for a lot of consumers.
2: I mean, they, they even said it was nation-state attackers, I think, at one point. Yeah, in the beginning, they go nation-state attackers. So, I, I think I would argue that you you are right. I just want to say about, we so do need to provide more information because this really literally tells me almost nothing. I feel like I just read an advertisement, but um, well, I, 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 I'm
1: pretty sure it is an advertisement. You know,
2: I, I saw a lot of big buzzwords going through and I saw APTs or nation states, I think, and big number graphs. So, I thought that looks pretty spooky. Yeah. Um, but I, I was, <laughs> you know, I was very curious about. If they had talked more in practicality, it sounded interesting because the only thing was this is kind of future proofing that while firmware attacks aren't as prevalent probably right now, as more and more, you know, uh, a security posture improves and stuff like that, systems get better at hardening, you know, people will look at the next level and that would probably be firmware. But if it's already pretty secure within five to 10 years, you know, you really limit the uh, the scope of attack for like they mentioned APT groups, but I just thought it was interesting that they they mentioned that group. And I literally, I feel stupid for never knowing who that group is.
0: Yeah, you're dropping the ball, dude. You're our, uh, you're our campaign guy.
2: <laughs> I'm trying, man. You're fired. I, I'll, I'll, no, I'll write kidding. it down on my little Hello Kitty notepad, bro.
0: Don't worry. There you go. All right. So uh, we'll talk about another Microsoft thing. So this is our last topic. Yeah. And, and it's, console uh, hacking. <laughs> yep of course uh guarding against physical attacks the xbox one story so right off the bat i want to point out a lie cuz they say both xbox one and the ps4 have now been on the market for close to 6 years without hackers being able to crack the system to enable piracy or cheating uh no uh ps4 you can you can absolutely pirate and cheat on it uh you know all you need is a kernel exploit even to do up that even
1: after the uh, latest firmware <clears throat>
0: If you have zero days, sure. And there are people See, who do have zero days. So. I think,
1: well, he kind of touches on that in the talk, though, that um, the researchers have to keep things quiet if they want to keep using it because they can just update and patch out whatever the vulnerability is. And I think that's why he's also saying like, for the PS4 uh, remainings here is because technically, you know, maybe the latest firmware doesn't have the known vulnerability
0: that can be used yeah i mean that's a fair point it's just that that sentence like saying that they haven't been able to crack the system it's just like dude 1.76 was like it wasn't that far i think it was like within a year after the console released and you know people were pirating on that firmware so yeah but again
1: one of his points ends up
0: being that
1: they can just update it and it's now secure again Like, that's one of the points that he kind of brings up. So I think, like, when he's saying that, he's taking that into account. Not that it's uh, never been, but that it's not at this point. And, you know, they've always just been able to update it to keep it secure. At least that, otherwise, like, it is just an absolute lie. But I'm going to assume that he's not trying to lie to people. I'm going to assume that from some perspective, he's... You know, he's an honest guy sharing his thoughts on this. Maybe not. Maybe he is just straight up lying. But, I mean, I'm just going to give him kind of that benefit of the doubt that, okay, from this perspective, you know, okay, that could be considered true.
0: Playing devil's advocate. Yeah. Um, one thing I will say, though, is that, you know, Xbox One, it is more secure than the PS4. It's just, there's no, like, really debating that. Uh, They have, you know, they have app isolation uh it's running windows 10 which is a more mature kernel obviously so i mean uh saying that the xbox one is more secure than the ps4 uh i can't really dispute that uh this this talk like you know i skimmed through it i didn't really listen to the full thing but it did seem a lot like microsoft flexing (laughs) definitely
1: so it sounds like this was actually an internal thing that they uh he mentions that he wrote this uh, like 4 years ago and just updated it a bit for like this public release of the talk um that said i did listen to the entire thing it was it was pretty interesting okay. actually you know a lot about the design the types of attacks that have been like like that were pulled off on the 360 um why they were con- what they were concerned about you know why off the shelf chips just aren't an option um uh, like it was yeah, I I really liked it. It was an interesting talk.
0: Uh, since you did listen to the talk, I, I'm gonna ask: Did it focus mostly on software issues or hardware issues? Uh, or like, a lot of hardware. Of um, okay.
1: And I mean, the title is guarding against physical attacks.
0: <laughs> That's why I was wondering, right? So yeah, like,
1: it deals with a lot yeah. of like their hardware, what they do to try and be like resilient to just glitching attacks uh, okay, by cool. making sure like no single path will take you will get you in somewhere like there's always gotta be more and how they like prevent talk to uh time of check time of view stuff um yeah it's just a really good overview i think
0: okay i think i'll give it a listen then because that sounds more interesting than i thought it was originally so yeah i mean i
1: tossed it on uh you know 1.5 speed and listened to it this morning uh but
0: you love speeding things up eh? (laughs) hey
1: well you're just able to get through it a bit
0: quicker yeah fair enough uh yeah, so I think that pretty much sums that up. Uh, one thing I did want to add is you were saying, like, uh, you know, you can't pull off uh, piracy and stuff like that without Zero Day because they can just patch it.
1: In I mean, all you fairness, still
0: can. But, but, I mean, like, in all fairness, that's always kind of been true. It's just that with stuff like the PS3, it was such a critical issue that it couldn't be patched. Uh,
1: well, and I mean, there was no patching like... older consoles like the PS2. You know, it was a new release or nothing yeah uh so and he kind of mentions that being just a newer um thing is people are accepting these updates now, so they're able to do that uh there was one thing I wanted to talk about though, out of it, and that is he did talk about why has xbox one security lasted so long, and he gives a few different reasons um I actually do have the list here, which is they keep their critical components simple. The boot code is encrypted. The boot process is resilient to glitches. They actually talk about a glitch attack that was performed on the Xbox 360, um, and thus how they hardened against that. Um, that has a separate security processor with its own like ROM and SRAM, RNG, fuses, crypto, like everything all on its own security chip. Uh, no bussing to communicate things or no insecure bust, I should say, and that console updates are accepted careful review, threat modeling, pen testing to avoid stupid, obvious mistakes. And I felt like they missed one key point, and that is that they allow homebrew.
0: Yeah, okay, that's a good point, because I actually, you know, I actually made a tweet about that, because uh, somebody was saying how, like, You know, it's kind of crazy how the Xbox One is more secure, like how much more secure it is than the PS4. And that's definitely a point worth mentioning is that uh, Xbox One, they allow you to deploy your own apps and and use them because, and mostly the reason they can do that is because of the way they do, you know, they they isolate it. Uh, It's ran in like a virtual machine, so having access through the app into user land isn't really that powerful you have a long way to go before you can compromise the whole system yeah and actually so, even
1: compromising the hypervisor doesn't necessarily get you there either they talk about how they have kind of defenses up in that but yeah I've, I've always felt like just the fact that they allow homebrew means there's a number of people that just aren't looking for the security issues because they can do their homebrew
0: already yeah the incentive is kind of gone yeah in like that regard.
1: I mean, I remember we were considering looking at the Switch a while back. And then that RCM exploit came out, which kind of killed, at least for me, it killed my motivation to get started on that. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Because, I mean, the console's phoned. You can do everything. All that's really left now is piracy. Yeah, sadly. And, I mean, I think Microsoft just allowing that made a big difference. I'm kind of disappointed that he doesn't include that in the talk. And that that kind of tells me that Microsoft isn't even considering that as an important consideration. But I really think that was like a key reason why it hasn't been getting hit as much.
0: Yeah, I mean, a lot of researchers in every scene, uh, like the PS4 scene, Switch scene, you know, most of them, uh, at least the ones that release stuff publicly, they don't really care about piracy. They care a lot more about the homebrew and stuff and or just doing it to see if they can, which... You know, that is an incentive to be considered for the Xbox One because of how much harder it is. I am a little bit surprised that there aren't more people looking at it just because it is so hard to crack. Uh, But another thing to consider there, too, is because it's using... I'm pretty sure it uses Hyper-V for the hypervisor. I'm not sure if it does. Like, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm guessing it does. It makes sense. Yeah, it does Uh, use Hyper-V. Okay, so Actually,
1: there are a number of features that came to Hyper-V because the Xbox... One team kind of develop them out
0: yeah so you have hyper v and you have windows 10 bugs for both of those are very valuable you know uh those are valuable zero days we're talking like six figures uh whereas something like the ps4 or the switch where it's running a, a proprietary kernel or a kernel like freebsd which isn't as valuable as windows is it's a lot less punishing to burn those bugs uh and as K9 team K9 in the chat put You know, there's a lot of telemetry, too, on the Xbox One. So, if you even hit one crash, you probably burn your shit before you even manage to exploit it. Yeah, but at the
1: same time, I mean, usually you're going to disconnect from the internet or not be connected at all on the device that you're going to start exploiting on. Specifically for that reason, so that it's not calling home.
0: But um, a lot of features on the Xbox One, especially the Xbox One, do require internet connectivity. Fair so, point, yeah. you know, that's that's kind of the issue with that. So, you know, a fun little uh, console hacking discussion. Yeah, Thought well, I mean, I'm really off,
1: but... intrigued by this whole platform security summit where this was presented at the beginning of the month. I mean, I'm assuming it's a private thing. You, as far as I can tell, you, nobody can just go to it, which is a bit disappointing. It looks like a really cool thing. They've like number of talks are kind of interesting, but. This one definitely stood out as being fairly related to what we talked about. Yeah. Uh, but like I said, it, it does come off as, you know, Microsoft trying to flex a little bit here. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure this Platform Security Summit was, you know, sponsored by
0: Microsoft. Yeah. All you needed to put was like one slide saying we wrote this in Nano. And you know, we would have known that it was secure already. Uh, but yeah, that's our last topic. So, uh, that pretty much sums up the podcast. Did any of you guys have anything you wanted to add before we uh, head off?
1: Um, no, I'll just, you know, add the usual. If you, as I mentioned, the Spectre's going to be doing another look at the Binder UAF, hopefully completing that on Wednesday at what time?
0: 8 p.m. Eastern. 8 p.m.
1: Eastern, 5 Pacific. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, which is kind of the normal time. So, you know, Wednesday, you know, be sure to check that out, um, If you have other exploits you want us to take a look at and stuff, um, I believe, you know, we're we're wanting to do more of that, need more ideas, things that people are interested in, let us know. Um, Just if you have questions, feel free to, you know, leave a comment over on YouTube. All these videos do go on to YouTube. Uh, The link to that is um, uh, down below. There's a section to the videos. There's also a section over to Anchor and everywhere where you can just get the audio podcast.
0: All right. Yeah. So uh, for those of you that are interested in tuning in on Wednesday, I'll see you guys on Wednesday at uh, 8 p.m. Eastern and 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, For the rest of you that
2: are just here for the podcast, we will see you next Monday at the usual time.